Welcome to the Chapel of the Cross podcast. I'm Elizabeth Marie Melshona, Rector of the Parish. This week, I'm pleased to welcome the Reverend Jeffrey Hoare, who will be joining us as sabbatical priest beginning in May. Jeffrey comes to us from a long and storied career of leadership in the Episcopal Church that has taken him from Raleigh to Alexandria to Atlanta to Washington, D.C., and Jeffrey's ordained ministry began right here at the Chapel of the Cross. Jeffrey, welcome to the podcast. So I wonder if we begin today, if you could describe for us the landscape of your childhood. What did it look like? With whom did you spend time? What kind of animated those early years for you? Well, I, I, I grew up and lived in the country. We, we lived in villages outside of towns uh, my whole life. And fairly early on, I, w- I was packed off to the boarding school. But the, the landscape uh, were fields, and I remember a fallen down tree that became a, became a camp, lots of small boys climbing and playing. And when the fields were plowed uh, in the autumn uh, and the mud were, were in thick clumps, I remember how heavy the mud was on my boots. Mm. Uh, Did you have mud boots a, that you kept by the door? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. and and uh, green ones, no doubt. So, <laughs> and, and I remember sort of uh, village things. I remember in those days the hunt would still gather outside the pub, and we would chase them with the beagles and the, this and that. And um, my Friends were mostly from other villages around, and especially once I went away to boarding school, then it tended to be other boys in boarding schools. Um, mm-hmm. I was one of the lucky ones. I didn't go till I was nine. And and so at what age might one go in an English? Seven. Okay. Seven. Okay. Um, and it, it all sort of goes back to having so many, you know, colonial administrators who needed to pack their children back for education and so it's, yeah, it was, it was, a, it was a, and and actually, I drive past that that boarding school, which was not a happy thing. I drive past that to get to my middle brother's house, uh, from where my parents lived and where my youngest brother lives. Drive past that; it's now an old people's home. And so, your brothers are still in England. My brothers are still in England, both within the the town, the nearest sort of town that you might have heard of is Bury St Edmunds. Um, okay. where there's a, a cathedral, the diocese is Ipswich and Edmondsbury. It's the most, I have heard of that. Sort of the edge, it's the edge of the of the Ipswich diocese. And did you grow up going to church? Yeah, I, I still have, not sure, I think it's downstairs, but I still have the Bible I was given when I went to boarding school because I had to leave the choir. It was St. Mary the Virgin in a village called Little Baddow, uh, which okay. was outside of a town called Chelmsford, which is where the trains went. And when I, when I was talking to the Church of England, it was the Bishop of Chelmsford was the bishop, but he siphoned me off to a, to a suffragan in, in Colchester. So all okay. northeast of London, basically. As the trains got better, we moved further out. My, my father was a barrister who, about the time I was born, went into the brewing industry because he'd had a practice in licensing. And in those days, all the pubs were tied to the breweries. And, um, the, the sort of family joke was that he changed his bar. <laughs> well, well done. <laughs> but, yes. 
So what led you to North Carolina? There's a little little ocean in between. Uh, I was getting, uh, in those days, once you'd done something called A-levels, which was sort of yes. the level exams of school, you then, it was customary then, it's no longer the case, but you would stay an extra term to take entrance exams for Oxford or Cambridge. Okay. And so I was back for that extra term to take Cambridge exams. N- most people did. You didn't, not everybody did, but most people did. At the beginning, the early school year assembly, the headmaster sort of said rather snottily, oh, there's this thing in America if anyone's interested. You know. And it was a scholarship to UNC. And, and it also, with a little research, turned out that it meant a day in London before Oxbridge entrance exams. And a day in London for a boarding school boy is a very valuable thing. So you had an interview in the morning and a, a dinner in the evening. So it's a day, it's a free day. It's good. Yes. And after dinner, they handed out envelopes saying, "Come back tomorrow." Or, uh, well, your your congregation will know it's the it's it's now called the Moorhead Cane, but it was the Moorhead Scholarship, and they yes. gave out a gave out a, uh, an envelope after dinner saying, "You've done very well. Go back to school, or you've done very well. Come come back tomorrow." Tomorrow. And I thought, oh Lord, I, I've got exams. I haven't, you know, haven't, I've got some books to crack. <laughs> There are lots. There are lots of stories, but the one you might enjoy. Once my, I was offered this the scholarship on the day before or two days before the exams, the Cambridge exams were to start, and I remember by arrangement talking to my father, who who was sort of saying, "What's wrong with Maudlin? Why would you consider this strange thing?" And then he did the math on the what was then the tuition, the, the best, the, the richest available scholarship for someone in England anywhere. And uh, he got a little more interested. And we arranged to be on the telephone, which was, in my case, a pay telephone in the boarding house. And um, we had atlases out and started sort of trying to figure out where North Carolina was by starting in the north and, and kind of working our way Working down. your way down. <laughs> <laughs> so that's, that's, how I, that's how I wound up in the... Fall of 1976, landing on Eastern Airlines, Raleigh-Durham Airport, which you pull your car up outside the terminal. But that old terminal was the last one to be knocked down, I think. And the then director of the foundation picked us up, apologized that his the car was so small. To us, it looked like a football field. I mean, it was, and uh, because it was his wife's car, his, his, his was in the shop. You know, lot, lots of stories about that. I subsequently buried him. He he became oh. a church in Atlanta while I was there and uh, died of Pick's disease, which was a really... Yes. Um, some of your parishioners will remember Mebben Pritchett, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. who was Chuck Lovelace's predecessor. Predecessor. Mm-hmm. What were your encounters like with the Chapel of the Cross when you were here as a college student? Oh, it was heady heady stuff for me. I had been, I had been evangelically converted, I suppose, was the language I would have used uh, at mm-hmm. that point, middle of, middle of high school. And it was during those years that I uh, believed that I was called to orders. The language then would have been going into the church. Okay. Lots and lots of things changed about my understanding of theology and grasping of grace and whatnot, but that sort of stayed really all the way through. So I, I came to Chapel Hill as um, s- sort of in the process of shedding what had 
turned out to be a very rationalistic system that the cracks just were beginning to be too much to deal with. You know, if it, mm-hmm. why aren't my prayers being answered? Well, you're not praying right. That kind mm-hmm. of And it's a closed system. So all your questions are answered within, within the system. And so I started going to the cha- attending the Chapel of the Cross. Peter Lee was the rector. Little interesting footnote, I was the student on the committee that interviewed and ultimately led Peter to call Bob Duncan as the chaplain. Um, and, and, and then I went away, and when I came back to the diocese, Bob was one of the more effective chaplains. But they were beginning, the, you know, that relationship was an interesting one. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, the Chapel of the Cross was, uh, was, became really important to me as I shared. I went to, a, you know, the InterVarsity, I can't it was called Carolina Fellowship or something like that. I went to a couple of Bible studies, and I just, it was so smug. Mm-hmm. It appeared to me. Um, I'm sure, sure it was very valuable. In fact, um, fast forward to St. Albans, a woman joined the parish in part because she remembered me attending a Bible study, which is really frightening. But anyway, all those years ago, it's <laughs> amazing. Away. Yeah. What What was going on? The prayer book trial liturgies were were going on, and um, women were just being ordained. Women were just being ordained. Um, yeah. Again, when I was back in the diocese at, uh, in, in Raleigh, I came over for Paulie Murray's first celebration of the Eucharist. It was a, so you were actually in the chapel? I was in the chapel that night. On yeah. February 13th, 1970? Oh, wow. Wow. Yeah. I was there. Really, really extraordinary. But anyway, so, so undergraduate years, it was, uh, I was, you know, it was heady arguing with professors about, you know, prayer book revision and so on. A man who became very important to me was a, who since died, John Wesley Dixon. Um, yes. Junior. Um, I did independence. He was duly tenured in religion and art. Really interesting fellow. Another man who was at the Chapel of the Cross in those days, his name you might remember is John Sheets, who had a very bad bicycle accident. Yes. Lots of others. Yes. So it was... Uh, what was happening was that I was getting a different understanding, I suppose, of grace um, through the ministry of this church where I didn't see equivalents of, of that in England, at least not in the home counties. And my religion had been somewhat boarding school shaped anyway. The, the parish churches <clears throat> were fairly grim in the villages we lived in. So it, it ultimately, again, fast forward, I went back to England for a couple of years to Cambridge. And while I was there, I was in the Church of England process, and I was interviewing at a theological college, and the principal said, look, Jeffrey, you're welcome to come here, but every word out of your mouth suggests you want to go back to America. So because I wanted to know more about these, these large parishes, the Chapel of the Cross being Exhibit A in my life, and so so terribly important to to a, a different understanding of the whole enterprise, really. Mm-hmm. Jeffrey, could you speak to that a little bit more? Because I wonder, I think perhaps if someone attends the Chapel of the Cross regularly, they might not realize how scale and size is different, either within the Episcopal Church context or uh, as compared with the the English context and the, the notion of the, the parish church being geographical bounds. Yeah. I had never experienced 
anything like what I would now call a large Episcopal parish. I don't know how big it was. I know it was, I think there were three clergy, one of whom was the campus mm-hmm. minister. I, may, I think I'm remembering that right. But I remember, you know, a full choir and incredible music. And this is a long, long way from uh, the church in the village of Great Hawksley, where the rector really liked the little church on the housing estate, which we rudely called the Tin Tabernacle. And and uh, we went to the parish church, which was a this sort of Victorian pile. And it was usually our family and three little old ladies who were the choir that we knew as the Spice Girls. And um, <laughs> it was not an, an enlightening experience. For the most yeah. part. But, but it was what, what you did. It was your parish church. You went to church. Yes. It was fulfillment um, of the, the duty and the act. But the Chapel yeah. of the Cross was a very different. I, mean, I had not experienced anything like it. And I imagine... That I that even if you if you come from a sort of mega church type of background, it, it it might not look that big, but it's and and communion would be an unusual thing. But I imagine if you're from you know a smaller town in the south, it could seem pretty large and mm-hmm. and uh, vibrant. And so I, I I can't speak to the experience of others, but sure but it um it was certainly critical in shaping what became my own understanding of my own vocation. I came back for just a couple of years to learn about large American parishes, was ordained in North Carolina, deacon at the Chapel of the Cross, and then priest at Christ Church in Raleigh, where I served. And then you've gone on to serve large Episcopal congregations. Yes. I mean, certainly certainly relatively multi-staff. I went from Christ Church to St. Paul's in Old Town, Alexandria, which is down the street from your friend and mine, the rector of Christchurch, Alexandria. Yes. And, um, and I was 11 years there before going to uh, All Saints in Atlanta, fantastic parish in Midtown Atlanta, if anyone knows that. And then we moved to Washington in 2016 for my wife Sable's job. Uh, she was then with uh, doing public affairs with AT&T and they moved to the Washington and then there was a change at the top and it was ugly and she was sort of muscled out, not sort of, she was muscled out and it was ugly. And we decided to sort of hang in while we had girls going through, through high school. Yeah. And the Bishop was really using me as a fireman there. So I, I said that I was serving a formerly large parish, uh, which after the, the un, uh, the rector removed a musician and neither survived it and people and money were out the door and it was a, a very broken um, mm-hmm. broken community in many ways. And it was really engaging to uh, rebuild a place. And that was, a, that was a, a good five years, even though COVID kind of put the brakes on a bit. Um, for a couple of and, was, and COVID invited its own kind of rebuilding and reimagining and becoming a televangelist in well, ways that yeah, all, one might not have been. <laughs> yes, uh, I didn't take a class in production values in seminary, but uh, nor did I. But luckily, my my youngest, our youngest, uh, Alison, was at the Duke Ellington School of the Arts uh, doing film, really. So she was absolutely uh, a, a key volunteer. For, for the live streaming uh, thing for but, a while. And, and I mean, that's, that is an example of, I think one of the things of which COVID reminded us was the, the 
the breadth of ages and engagement. I mean, we had a middle schooler helping out running our our live stream. It takes it takes the whole church to serve the whole church. It really does. I think of the church uh, as a as a you know we spend all this time talking about images of the church. I, my image of the church is it's a, a leaky chalice from which grace somehow gets dispensed, seeps out <laughs> through the crack very often. <laughs> Indeed. But the, the the large parish thing is is there's nothing, you know, a parish is a parish is a parish, but we tend to have more options to address the challenges that all parishes face. Mm-hmm. It tends to be pretty rich, particularly for the generation that looked for more of a smorgasbord of possibilities and ministries and then tapped in. The, the trend now is more towards focus and depth and yes. pathways, and um, if I'm going to spend my time doing this, I better know what I'm going to, how I'm going to grow spiritually, and what that's going to look like, and how do I do it? And give me the steps. That that mm-hmm. seems to be more the trend uh, today. Would you? Is that? Would you share that? I think. So. I mean, I've, I've, I'm trying to think when that. When was I ordained? I've been doing this about 17 years now, and I think it has that. I have noticed that arc go from like a. I want everything at the Shoney's salad bar to depth and also a sense of connection of purpose, like what I'm doing and how does it relate to an outcome or an impact yeah. either in my life or in the community. Yeah. Um, and, and I'm not sure the Episcopalians would jump on the Shoney's image, but I know what you mean. It's, it's very particular to where I, <laughs> growing up in Southwestern Virginia, Shoney's was a you got it. Yep. Yeah. big deal. The um, uh, I, I was I did one of these uh, pension fund retreat things. It's called Crazy yes. Number of Years Ago, and there were only two of us who weren't sort of desperate to retire. Yes. Um, the other fellow was from a large uh, evangelical Episcopal church in Texas, and he kept saying that people today were indifferent to the gospel. And after hearing him say this a number of times, I said, "Patrick, they, people are not indifferent to meaning and purpose. They are Mm-mm. indifferent." package we're putting it in and he really that was a a key thing for him but it also got me because i was just sort of spouting off and but it got me thinking about it too you know a martian landing on in one of our services would find it a very strange form of life yes you know, Miroslav Volf, who was one of a yds professor just i think it's either today or quite recently released uh, a life worth living in his latest book about, you know, what is it, what is it to live with purpose? Not picked it up yet, but I will. I'm a huge yeah. fan of Miroslav's. Me too. So you have shifted into c- coaching clergy and coaching, both coaching and mentoring and you're uh, an international coach federation certified coach or moving through that process yeah i've got to send a tape in i haven't done it yet <laughs> just <laughs> but i did i did you did all the training yes and so what what has that experience been like for you shifting into that role of coach of asking questions of helping people align values and action sort of as a as a, a next chapter in your life of ministry well, I I started it thinking, what am I going to do next? Because I'm not sure I'm going to go the interim route, which you know 
large parishes looking for interims are it's, it's not a big pool of candidates right. i just not certain that's for me lauren mead who founded the mm-hmm. institute was a member of st albans and i visited him for the last year and a half of his life every week he just told me i was going to do that and i was happy that we'd known each other for 35 years or something and um we never could quite agree on the value of interim ministry, which for him was absolutely, I mean, he'd been, he'd been, it was sa- sacros- yes. It, yes. It was, it was the, the answer to all problems. And, and I, I don't think that's, if that was true, I don't think it's necessarily true anymore. I don't think it's a bad thing, but I, anyway, so I'm not sure I'm, that's, that I'm cut out for that. I did a brief interim stint in Washington at the church of the epiphany downtown, which was, Really quite interesting parish for all kinds of reasons. But anyway, so I, I started the coaching with a view to thinking, well, what can I, how can I be of service? Mm-hmm. And I'm slowly, you know, mostly through word of mouth, collecting clients, some, some of whom have been you know, two, three years, usually starting with some, often with some kind of question or some kind of anxiety. Um, mm-hmm. You know, how do I manage my musician or, um, I'm new in my job. I don't even know what I'm supposed to be doing or you know, what is this ordained business all about? My my boss is a nightmare or whatever it is, you know. And so who, whatever the, the presenting need is, my assumption is that we look at points of anxiety and help um, essentially coach. It's it's prospective. It's help, help yes. us so much uh, revisiting the past as much as it is uh, helping people figure out what they want to do next. Yep. Um, and usually they know. Um, but it's a great um, privilege. I've got two clients right now going through trying to do ministry while being treated for cancer. Mm. One, I've, got, I've had people who have um, survived the conflict and people who haven't. Yeah. Um, it's it's a it's quite a it's quite a mixed bag of of um, of situations and people right now they're all Episcopalians and all but and mostly ordained but the ones who aren't ordained are in church para ministries or even though I taught a lot of you know non Episcopalians at, at Candler the Episcopalians were specials yes they were in a different program but. I, I don't have um, haven't branched into that outside the Episcopal world as yet. But again, you know, I don't. It's, it's early days, and we'll see how it goes. And um, I've got plenty plenty to do. So yes, well, thank you for saying yes to returning to the Chapel of the Cross. Oh wow! Being what? willing to be a sabbatical priest. I mean, yeah. Well, it's a major you. gift for uh, me. <laughs> so. <laughs> So what advice would you offer to a cleric approaching sabbatical who has never had one? And, and both to a cleric and to a congregation and a system. Well, to, to the cleric, I would say, enjoy it. I, I, t- I came to the belief that the, the best thing about coming back from sabbatical was it meant you started planning the next one. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> which is sort of a, a snotty thing to say, but uh, because of course it's lovely being back in the back in the community and the rhythm of life and mm-hmm. uh, and all of that. But 
Um, for for the congregation, uh, it's a chance to, of course, I've never actually been in the congregation when I've been on sabbatical. But Precisely. I've known plenty of clergy who have come back from sabbatical and found that things they thought would be happening hadn't happened, and they were just waiting for the rat to get back to start the stewardship campaign or to do the things that needed to be done while they were gone. And so one of the things I advised for the congregation is keep, keep on keeping on. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and if you're not sure, then you can figure it out because you're smart. <laughs> you know, Indeed. you don't need the rector in place necessarily. And it can be a, at its best, it's an empowering Thing for for the staff and the parish. Yes, oh. when it's I, um, I hope that it will be uh, for all. Well, thank you so much for spending time. But today, talking, I know that the congregation is looking forward to welcoming you. I am incredibly grateful um, that you, along with so many others, are helping make this little bit of space uh, possible in my own life, and just. Thank you for the ways in which your your experience of discipleship and encounter with this parish. I, it, there's something really beautiful in how it's being woven back back together over time. Yeah, it's a it's a, as I as I said, it's a real gift, and I'm grateful to you for your very brave invitation. You you may not know, and this is the original <laughs> line, but I, I I do James Bond martini sermons. That is, I'm quite capable of leaving people shaken, but not stirred. Not stirred. <laughs> I'll try not to do that uh, in your parish. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. We'll see you soon. Take care. The Chapel of the Cross is an Episcopal church in the heart of Chapel Hill and the university community. Find out more at thechapelofthecross.org. There you can find our latest news and events, connect with our pastoral care team, Faith in Action Ministries, and offer a prayer request. You can also find us on social media, on Instagram at The Chapel of the Cross, and on Facebook and Twitter at C-O-T-C Chapel Hill. May you be nourished by the word to serve in the world.